Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the U.S. Virgin Islands. In particular, we're in St. Croix in Christensted, And we're broadcasting from the legendary Buccaneer Hotel and Resort right here on the island. I have to say this to my next guest, and I'm sure she gets this all the time, perhaps in an indirect way. But most Americans have no idea about St. Croix. Most Americans have no idea where it is or how it came to be. And in fact, most Americans have no idea about their own U.S. national park system, even though there was so much publicity about the 100th anniversary this past year in celebrating our national parks. In fact, St. Croix has three national parks. And joining me now, the woman who runs it all. Oh, stop shaking your head and just listen to me. Sandy Hillistar, the chief. I'm going to call you the woman who runs it all, whether you like it or not. The chief of resource management for all three national parks in St. Croix. How are you? Well, that's correct. And thank you. And good morning, Peter. And good morning. So you heard my introduction. I mean, most people don't really know where St. Croix is. They don't really know that it's part of the United States. And they don't really know that they have resources here that, that other islands may not have. And three national parks on one island, that ain't bad. It's pretty significant because the island's about 90 square miles. And it's sitting in the middle of the Caribbean Sea uh, with only two other islands. Now, you said Caribbean. It's not Caribbean? 
Well, that either would way. be either way. Oh, okay, um, just double checking. It is, it is. But for me, it's it's Caribbean. Yeah. Maybe you know, as a as a Crucian or as a you know long time resident here, we tend to put more syllables on our words. And you are a long time resident here. You've been here how long now? Uh, originally came with my family in the 1960s, so I've seen many many changes on this particular island. But the one thing you've been able to maintain are those national parks. Exactly. Even when I was a child, uh, going out to Buck Island Reef National Monument, one of the three. Um, it was a completely different place, um, but it was where I actually say I got salt water in my blood, which is why I ended up being a marine biologist uh, and zoologist and uh, having this incredible opportunity to come back to these islands to give back um, as, as a, you know, a young beachcomber and a snorkeler and diver and then have this amazing opportunity in the 1980s to join the National Park Service. You know, last night I bumped into a couple of kids at dinner and I said, so you've been going around the island? I said, yes. Yeah. What's your favorite part? She says, Buck Island. They, I mean, they had like visions of pirates. Well, that's one of the stories that's yeah. told. Not as factual as it could be. Have you ever heard a pirate story that was factual? Um, yeah. Really? Definitely. Around here? But we call them privateers. Oh, excuse but, me. But yeah. since I'm the biologist, let's stay focused on what I understand best. <laughs> I think um, she's used to giving commands. Yes, I got it. Okay, well, stay focused. It's okay. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, fauna and flora. Okay. Well, Buck Island is a place that started um, as a very small national park in the 1960, 1961. It's one of the few national parks that was created by John F. Kennedy during his uh, term as president. So that is amazing. The Kennedy family used to come and visit St. Croix, and actually they still do. Uh, we recently had uh, one of the grandsons here working with us uh, on, a, on a documentary about Buck Island. Did they sail down here? Uh, no, no, they flew in like most of the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was established back in the 60s. Established back in the 60s, and in that enabling legislation, it was because of the most significant marine garden in the Caribbean Sea. And what, that, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, as you know, or we should let our viewers know, national parks are created because of significant and unique resources. It's not a dime a dozen. They have to be really special. And Buck Island reached that level and caliber because of the barrier reef, the coral barrier reef that surrounds the island itself. And there have been so many stories lately, and I've seen evidence of this, of, of the destruction of, of, of coral reefs. And of course, you destroy, you destroy the, cor the coral reef, you destroy the barrier reef. Uh, how have you been able to maintain that? Well, personally, I'm not, but I do get to watch how it's surviving the various impacts that are being thrown at it globally, um, as well as locally. What we have that's, that's very valuable to the reef survival at Buck Island, it's offshore. We don't have any of the land-based impacts to it, but it's, we're giving it a chance. So cr the park was created in the 60s, was very small. Under the coral reef protection laws in the 1990s, we were able to expand the park. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Speaking to Zandi Hill Star is the Chief of Resource Management at the U.S. National Parks here. All three of them might. So we just talked about Buck Island, but there are two more. There's Salt River Bay. That's correct. 
Salt River Bay National Historical Park and Ecological Preserve. It is a mouthful. But yeah, say it that is, three times fast. It is a mouthful because it is an amazing park. The, one of the first unique things is it's actually co-managed with the government of the Virgin Islands. So we have two management teams, one sitting in the park, one sitting in the Department of Planning and Natural Resources, and we work trying to synthesize what to do in this ridge-to-reef park. So it basically starts up in the hills of St. Croix on the North Shore, and it extends down into almost the second deepest part of the world's oceans, the Puerto Rican Trench. So this is one-stop shopping. You get land and sea. Yes, you do. And you also get 2,000 years of human history. Tell me more. Well, if, uh, if I were looking for a place to live, I would want a place that had uh, food resources, wildlife to harvest and capture, and I wouldn't want fresh water. And if you go back 1,800 to 2,000 years, Salt River gave it all to you. It's, a it's an area and it's an estuary that was created by a prehistoric river that carved through the, basically the side of the island. And what it is, it is that carving continued down into the depths and going down 600 feet, you know, going down thousands of feet, you get this canyon. And when you're down there, actually at about 120 feet, there's this uh, white sand tongue and then it falls off to about 600 feet, and then it just keeps going until it joins the Puerto Rican Trench. Wow. I actually got to live there for 10 days underwater as well. Say that again? Underwater? <laughs> exactly. Tell it me was, more. It was the home of NOAA's National Undersea Research Program from the 70s through the, the late 80s. And so that undersea habitat, which it started off as the habitat, and then it grew up and it became the Aquarius. Um, and in 1989, I was uh, part of a research team that lived underwater for 10 days. And where is that particular piece of equipment? That piece of equipment right now is up in Florida. Are they, are they still using it? It is. It's being, it's being used in the Florida Keys. But it left here after about a 13-year run. Um, and uh, we were the last mission studying corals and fishes and doing a bunch of research work for 10 days there. And then Hurricane Hugo came. And uh, uh -oh. yeah. it survived, but it was not able to stay down. They had to bring it up. Right. So I shouldn't call you Zandy Hill Star. I should just call you Jules Verne. Uh, or Jacques Cousteau. Oh, you'll, you'll go with that I'll one, I'll go too? with that one. In that period of time that you were underwater, what was the biggest surprise for you? Oh, the, just the atmosphere, the sitting at night, and uh, we would occasionally turn the outdoor lights on and just watch all of the marine life come swirling in front of this huge, you know, round window. Dome, dome yeah. window and listening to some really great music and realizing that the next day we were going to go back out into the water column and as a scuba diver for many, many years, being able to be in the water column for more than, you know, your standard 60 minutes. Of course. We were able to be, you know, at 80 feet for up to four hours. Wow. And okay, we, I just have one word for you. Claustrophobia? A little? Come uh, on, a little. Sure, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit. But you do, um, actually, they use the Aquarius uh, missions as analogs for the space program. And so we were actually being tested and queried while we were saturated sure for the same reactions yeah, yeah. the same reactions uh, it was pretty fascinating did you get angry earlier or faster or i mean i would think that people your are in, emotions in are yeah. heightened yeah um what we did discover is that if you had a particular tendency to be a um you know difficult or um that was irritable that was or a mother yours truly became yes. more motherly um <laughs> that was seriously heightened but it was a fantastic team no, a number of years ago, I spent some time, I, I got actually a security clearance and went out on a classified mission on an attack U.S. submarine. And 
you're underwater for X number. I still can't talk about what we did, right? No, but no. But the thing is, you're underwater for X number of days, and you better learn to adjust because yeah. you got no other choice. Yeah, yeah. And, and our ceiling was at 60 feet. You know, once we were... You were, you were pressurized to 60? No. We were. The, yeah. the, the actual physical habitat was yeah. at 60 feet. Right. So when we were out in the water, our ceiling was 60 feet. If you rose any above that, you were in trouble. Right. Yeah, so it's fascinating. But Salt River... Um, you know, you can stand at the visitor center and look out across this amazing estuary. And, you know, it's one of the largest, most intact mangroves in St. Croix, um, the nursery reef area. Um, and then, you know, you can actually look out and see this deep blue um, area that falls away between the reefs. But so much has happened there over time um, that... You know, it's hard to tell the whole story, and it's certainly hard to see in one day. Well, the, the real bottom line here for anybody who's had the opportunity to be underwater for any extended period of time is how much we still do not know. Correct. And there are beautiful scuba dives there, so you don't have to be saturated to dive at Salt River. And snorkeling, too? Uh, snorkeling is a little more difficult. It really is a dive destination yeah. because of those steep... Um, what we call the canyon walls, the down. east and the yeah. west wall, but the diving there is fabulous. Amazing. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. We are in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, in fact, from the legendary Buccaneer a hotel that's been here for a long, long time, great family history, generational family history, and taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Peter S. Greenberg, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. We're here on the eastern end of, of St. Croix um, and on about 340 miles of tropical land, but what most people don't realize, uh, and if you were listening to us in the first hour, uh, you will begin to realize that this isn't just another Caribbean island. It's part of the United States, and it also has three separate national parks. And joining me now, an archaeologist with the national parks and also the cultural resource manager, Meredith Hardy. How are you? Very well, thank you. You've been here how long now? Well, I've been coming here uh, for work and fun since about 2002. So about 15 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and... It, people are always surprised. I'm, I'm, most people who come here, I'm, I'm not saying this because it's, it's a flip sentence, but most people who come here have no idea there are three national parks here. That's correct. They just think, oh, it's another Caribbean island. Let's go have a pina colada on the beach. That's correct. So, and then they, then they come and see you. <laughs> and then their eyes are turned around because all of a sudden it's like, I had no idea. Right. No, it's, it's quite amazing when people come here as a, as a vacation destination, and then they realize, wait, there's been people here for hundreds of years, and then they find out, no, actually, there's been people coming here, visiting here, living here uh, for thousands of years. And give me an idea, because, you know, there's one part of history we can do, how many different foreign flags have flown over this island, starting with the, you know, with, with, the, with the Danish, and then the French, and the British, and the, the Russians got in there somehow, I mean, right? Uh, no, uh, sorry, no Russians that I, I know of. <laughs> well... That's a very popular saying these days. No Russians that I know of, by yes. the way. But that's a that's a Washington. That's another DC. story. That's yeah. another story. But you know what I'm saying. You, you you do the flag history, but there's so much history before anybody raised a flag. No, that that's correct. There've been people coming up here um, from actually they came from around the mouth of the Orinoco River down in Venezuela about 2,000 years ago, and then they've been trading between the islands, going all over the Caribbean, all over around all of the islands um, for a very long time, all the way up until when Columbus showed up on November 14th, 1493. No, but, but who's counting? 
No one. Okay, let's talk about this. So he showed up here after he supposedly discovered the New World. Yes, so this was during his second voyage. Um, he, was, um, he was working his way Did he way get lost up. again? Uh, no, he didn't know. He had a better idea of where he was. He had been traveling up the island chain and had um, taken on board several um, Amerindians from other islands, and they were giving him directions as far as who was living on what islands and, uh, and what kinds of societies that they were. And they showed up here on, um, on November 14th, and they encountered a village at Salt River Bay, um, which is one of our national parks. And he planted the flag, of course. Uh, not really. He actually never stepped foot on the island. He sent really? some of his minions onto, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, onto the While shore. While you go get slaughtered, I'll be here on the <laughs> ship supervising. No, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you know, he's, you yeah. Know, very good at delegating. Yeah. Um, so he sent uh, several of his minions to the shore to look for uh, fresh water and supplies. And they found a, a small village at Salt River that had been uh, quickly abandoned. It looked like um, people had r- ran off into the hills when they saw the ships coming. Um, as they got some supplies and were heading back to their ship, they noticed a canoe over on the side of the bay. The canoe came out and started um, basically trying to attack um, Clemens's men. They had an interaction. It was the first recorded armed conflict in the New World. I suppose Columbus won? Yes. And yes, then? And then they took um, the survivors from that attack onto their ship, and then they sailed on up to where they discovered uh, the other Virgin Islands. That's where he actually named named uh, St. Thomas, St. John, and all of the islands to the north, the Virgin Islands. Wow. Okay, now we know the history. Yes. And the plundering. (laughs) (laughs) But then comes you and the national parks. Yes. I mean, what's the biggest surprise for people, other than the fact that they then discover there are three national parks? I think, what, let me see. I think that uh, that so much of the history is still here. So much of it is still underground and and, uh, undiscovered. Um, we run a community archaeology program out of the park at Christiansted National Historic Site. And we we um, bring in several local students from the University of the Virgin Islands to work with us. And they're shocked that just barely below the ground surface are pieces of pottery that date back to the 1760s that almost fully intact um, uh, plates and bowls and uh, forks and tools and all kinds of things. You even found anchors. Yes, we have found anchors in the waters off of um, off of Buck Island Reef. Were you, able, were you able to raise them? No, no, um, no. We try to record everything in place, especially when it's underwater, because while it's a historical artifact, it's also now providing a base for coral reefs and other natural resources. So we try to record you it keep that in, intact, right? But as an archaeologist. I mean, the word archaeology, always, always, to me, is, 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 sim- is synonymous with discovery. Yes. So what are you finding? You've what, been here 15 years. I think... What are you literally unearthing? We're literally unearthing pieces from all around the world that have, worked, that have made their way here. I mean, as, I've, as I said a little bit earlier, they, um, this island has really been cosmopolitan for a very long time. So we've got evidence from thousands of years ago from pottery and stone tools and really refined pieces that have worked their way up from South America and Central America all the way to more uh, historical times where you have Chinese porcelain and uh, silver coming from all over the world um, up until today. So I think just the realizing how globally connected this place has been for so long is one of the really neat things to, to find out. And your biggest surprise discovery? My biggest, I would have to say one of the anchors. We were running um, an, an underwater survey where we drag a magnetometer behind a boat out at Buck Island. And it and snagged. 
No, we didn't snag, but we did hit a, a we get a, a hit. You know, we got an, um, an anomaly. A big hit. Yeah, it was a big hit. So we jumped off the boat and looked at it and almost landed right on top of the anchor. So it was like, whoops, there we go. Now, do you have any idea where the anchor was from? Um, we have an idea um, of uh, the time period when it was made, um, but we are... Because there's such a wide um, range of time, we're not exactly sure. We can't really stick a date on it and say this came from this particular boat. How many wrecks are out here? <laughs> oh, hundreds. Hundreds. You think of every hurricane that, um, that pushes boats onto a coral reef to every nighttime um, excursion when someone doesn't quite see where they're going. Or maybe... That may- happens? Oh, yeah. I'm all jo- the I'm time. Joking. All the time. Yeah. Let's say in the 1800s when you have people trying to smuggle goods, and so they're trying to be sneaky and go around the backsides of islands, and they're not really familiar with the reefs. I mean, when you think about how much of the world is still not properly charted, it's easy to understand how people run aground, and then you get to discover it. Yes. I love it. Meredith Hardy, the archaeologist here on the three U.S. national parks. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel and playing the radio with no particular place to go. When you talk about the history of this island and you put it in context with how many chain hotels are there, how many corporate hotels are there that we've all stayed in, it's unusual and I might say refreshing to find a hotel that's been owned by the same family since basically day one. And uh, I'm joined now by a third generation owner and in fact the general manager of the Buccaneer, Elizabeth Armstrong. Did I get all that right? You did, Peter. Thank you. Good morning. I mean, we're talking about your father, your grandfather, the whole gang. I mean, this hotel is how old? The hotel itself opened in 1947, but my grandfather, Douglas Armstrong, bought it in 1922 as a cattle ranch. So it's kind of funny to think of all the cattle running around by, uh, by the beaches. But most people who would vacation in St. Croix wouldn't even think of the word cattle. You know, it's interesting. We actually have a St. Croix Senapole, which is a combination of an English red bull and a Senegalese uh, cow, and they were bred together. Do. Of course you do. They're exported all over the world, and they're a breed just like Black Angus. And can you order that on the menu? You cannot order that on the menu because we have a uh, free-range, grass-fed New Zealand filet mignon. But we can, in <laughs> fact, get uh, the Annalee Farms. We're very proud to have Annalee Farms on the island, so we can get that, too. But when you talk about the history of St. Croix, I mean, how many different flags have flown here? So we've been known as the island under seven flags, and we uh, were actually first inhabited thousands of years ago by Indians out of South America. And uh, it was the Caribs out of Venezuela who were here when the first of the Europeans arrived. And that was Christopher Columbus. Uh, He came here on his second voyage in November of um, 1493 and claimed it for Spain. As he would. Yes. But the Danish. Yes. So after Spain, uh, the English and the Dutch, uh, they they co-owned the island and uh, held it until it was seized from them by France. As it would be. <laughs> I love how they co-own it. Did they co-own it peacefully? Not at all. In <laughs> fact, uh, things really came to a head when the Dutch governor invited the English governor over for tea to kind of work out their squabbles on property rights, but instead he assassinated him. 
And then the English retaliated later on and killed the Dutch governor and things kind of went to haywire after that. So redefining the words English breakfast tea. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So there's always been conflict when you think about it. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go back. We had the Spanish. Yes. Then we had the Dutch and the... English. Then we had the French. Yes. Then? Then the French leased it out that same year. As the French would do it, they'd lease it. Yes, to uh, the Knights of Malta. So we have a Knights of Malta history here on the island. Uh, Knights of Malta go back to the uh, to the Crusades, time of, of the course. Crusades, and they were here because the High Chevalier of the French chapter, Philippe de Longueville de Poincy, he actually wanted to own uh, this island and St. Kitts, but the French king refused to allow it. So basically, he was leasing what he thought was an option to own. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it turned out that uh, he wanted to get as much. Uh, out of his experience as he could, and so he taxed everything, and the planters grew to hate him, and so they actually... Oh, I, I can think I know what's coming. So they uh, petitioned the king to have him removed, at which point... And the king invited him over for tea and then killed him. No, no. No, he no. sent an emissary, and de Poincet figured out how to solve that problem. He threw him in prison, but a following year, a heavily armed and guarded emissary came, and de Poincet got the picture, so he relinquished control back to the crown. And to the French. To the French. Okay. And they held the island uh, until they sold it in 1733 to the Danish West Indian and Guinea Company, which was a, then a private entity. So it went back to the Danish. It, it became Danish for the right. first time. For the first time. Yes. Okay. So they show up. And then? So they, the private company, had some of the same problems that the Knights had. They wanted to get a fast return on the investment. Um, and they ended up bankrupting St. Croix. And that would force the major shareholder, who was the Danish king himself, King Frederick, to acquire St. Croix as the first of the crown colonies. And so seat of government for the Danish West Indies would move to St. Croix for a brief period from downtown uh, Charlotte Amalia over here to Christiansted. So basically the government of, of Denmark got it in a fire sale. Yes. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. When we last left off, there were seven different countries claiming in their own revisionist history <laughs> to have controlled this island at one time or another. And the Danish had it. Then the Danish private company lost it to the Danish government. And that's where we left off, Elizabeth. And then? And then. So Denmark would continue, actually, to hold these islands until their eventual sale in 1917 for $25 million in gold. I don't know what that would amount to today. But, but uh, who'd they sell it to? They sold it to the United States government. So now, we got it in a fire sale. Yes. So the U.S. was interested because the Panama Canal had been newly established in 1914. This was seen as uh, strategically important both for military for military and for proximity to the U.S. Uh, mainland borders, German U-boats going through the waters here of the West Indies. And so the first arm of the federal government that actually administered was the Department of Navy. 
But there's no Navy base today. No Navy base today. Today, um, our, we entered the, the United States as a possession, and today we're an unincorporated territory, like American Samoa and Guam. Exactly. So you have all the benefits of, of America and not as many of the restrictions. Yes, sort of. Sort of. Sort of. And but, I, you're, but you're paying taxes here. We do. We pay federal income tax. But when, you ma- when you mail a letter, it's with a U.S. stamp. Yes. It's a U.S. dollar. Yes. And you drive on the wrong side of the road. We do. That is a little bit unusual. We think that actually goes back to the uh, the time of the English because the Danes aren't aren't uh, no. left side drivers. And th- it was pretty much determined that the donkeys and horses wouldn't be able to learn how to drive on the other side of the road. So they just went with it. <laughs> and today we wouldn't be able to do it. It would be utter chaos. That's right. Donkey rehab wasn't going to work. Okay. Exactly. I got it. But then when did your, your family came in, in? So my original Armstrong ancestor came from Scotland and settled initially in Tortola. There were two brothers. One Now that's the British Virgin Islands. Yes. One would go to uh, Puerto Rico and another would come here to St. Croix back when the French actually used to own the island. So I'm the ninth generation of my family here on St. Croix. Wow, but a third generation owner. Yes, yes. So my, uh, my grandfather bought the property in 1922, had it as a cattle ranch. We actually ran cattle through the 60s. But when you bought it there as a ranch, you had a great haul. We did. So originally, this was one of the initial sugar estates that would be built. Uh, the then and day- there were a lot of sugar estates on the island. Um, about 200 of them. That's a lot. Yes. And you can see them dotting the hillside. They're all part of our cultural heritage. And so when uh, my grandfather bought the estate, the first floor of our main hotel building, our sugar mill, the boiling house, some of the other structures still here on the property were all there. And when he married my grandmother, they decided that they would initially turn it into a private residence. And then as they got into it, they thought, no, this would be a perfect hotel. So they opened up 11 rooms in December of 1947. the obvious question is, what do they know about hotels? And the answer was nothing. Nothing, exactly. (laughs) But my grandmother was natural for hospitality and every morning would uh, appear at breakfast and pour coffee and talk to the guests about what they liked and what they could do you know what we could do better and that's a tradition that we've continued guest feedback is super important to us and I have guests that are, are still coming here that uh, have been coming here since I was a child and and others who first started coming here 20 years ago when I became the uh, general manager What's the thing about this hotel that's never changed? You know, I think the the uh, the Buccaneer is a lot the way the Caribbean used to be. We're we're family owned. Um, we're we give you that sense of laid back paradise. Um, it's not a cookie cutter experience. You're here and you really get a sense of place. You really get a sense of the beauty of the people of Saint Croix and the the natural. Plenty of open space. Well, there's a sense of history as well, mm-hmm. and, and and I'm going to use a word that that might be misinterpreted, but there's, I use the word belonger, mm-hmm. a, a belonger, right? Because when you look at your staff and you say how long have you worked here, and they say oh, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, I mean they belong. I actually have one employee that's still working with us part time now, but he started work when my grandmother still ran the resort, and many people who uh, were working here when my father was still running the Buccaneer. So what's the one thing you had to do to make it relevant? Well, I think when you come to the Buccaneer, you see all of the luxury amenities that you would want in any... You know, the reason why I bring that up is because none of the, 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 the sort of old school resorts had this idea. We're not going to put TVs on the right. rooms. We're not going to put phones in the room. And 
people don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. They want a TV in the room, even if they don't even use it. You know, um, when I took over for my dad, I put in TVs. Uh, we allowed children. We didn't used to allow children at the Buccaneer. Can I talk to you about that? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no. And my dad thought, oh, no, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin the hotel. But, you know, he was willing to let me try new things. And, of course, people want to go on holiday with their children. Now so many people work, and, and they don't want to leave their kids at home. And also, we now have generational Buccaneer families. We, you know, we've had four generations here, which is a beautiful thing to see. Amazing. And I couldn't find the mini bar. No mini bar. That's right, but we do have refrigerators, and we're happy to stock it for you. But you know what? Old school works. Yes. Old school works. I hate those Darth Vader mini bars. Yes. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's clearance over. Over. Roger. Huh? As you know from every show we do, I always like to ask the locals, but in particular, there's always one of the locals I like to ask more than anyone else because, as many of you know, I'm also a fireman in New York. So, of course, wherever I go, I seek out El Jefe, the chief of the fire department, wherever we happen to be. Because when you think about it, he's been in every hotel. He's been in everybody's house. He's been in everybody's restaurant. He also knows where to eat. He's the chief, Larry Johnson, of the Virgin Islands Fire Service right here in St. Croix. How are you, chief? I'm all right. Oh, you're better than all right. You're in St. Croix. What are you talking about? I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) Now, you've been chief for two years, but you've been on the department for... 26 years. So you've seen a lot of change. Yes, I did. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fireman also on an island, and, and our challenges, as, you're, as are yours, are very specific in terms of water pressure, in terms of access to, to areas, in terms of where you're going to get the water from, right? Yes. What are your biggest challenges here? Our biggest challenge is um, actually working brush fires, because we have a brush season for about six months. Mostly starts at, in February. And probably June, July. Those are the hotter months, yeah. Yes, and especially if we have a drought. But when people come here, I mean, you, you, how many, how many men, men and women on your department? We have a total of um, about 96 personnel to include um, prevention and suppression. We have about eight females. Right. So it's a small department when you yes, think it about is. it. Yeah. And, 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 and you got a lot of land to cover, 90 square miles. Yes. You got to do it. So I always have to ask you this question because, because you, I know you know the answer, and that is, where do you guys go to eat? Where do you guys hang out that's not necessarily in the brochure, not necessarily in the guidebooks, that's a great local place for you, that you would, tell, that you would take me to uh, as a visiting fireman, not necessarily just a tourist? Well, we had a few places. We used to have Brady's, but he's shut down. Well, we can't go there no, now. No, can't um, go there now. For some reason, I just can't think on her name, but... She's right, she's right on Company Street, and she have good menus. The name just won't come to, me, to my okay, mind. Okay, but you know, what she, you know what she serves there. Yes. What are you eating there? Fungi and fish. Say that again? Fungi and fish. You want to explain what that is? Well, <laughs> fungi is a, it means, it's made out of caramel and okra. It's, it's like, I don't know how to explain how it is, but it's made out of caramel and okra, and you stir it, it comes hard. And you eat that with fish, boiled fish or fried fish. What kind of fish? Any kind. Any kind. <laughs> Any kind. You boil it long enough, it could be cardboard too, probably. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. And now there's, a, there's another place that I know you like called the Blue Water Terrace. Yes, I do. Why? They serve good food. Like? What are you eating there? Mostly I eat um, lobsters and I like the mahi-mahi. 
and those are both locally caught. Yes. That's the nice thing. When we talk about day boat fish in this part of the world, they're not kidding. It's coming in off the boat every day. Yes, they are. We have local fishermen that go out and they, they fish. Now, normally you go to any fire department, and these guys are eating pork chops and steak. Mm. Not you guys? Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> but we have a more local. We, we, we mostly like fish. Now, what about Carmar Park? Uh, it's Kramer Park. Ah, yes. tell me more. Well, it's one of, uh, one of the best beaches on the island. We have a next beach in um, Ferris said was called Dersh, Dersh Beach, but most people go to Kramer's Park. Now, we're not we talking about eating there. We're talking about this is a, just a cool beach. Just a beach. And what are you going to be doing? I mean, why is that such a cool beach? Well, it's traditionally been that way all the time. Um, that's where most of the locals go. We, we have our functions up there. We have um, whatever function we have. We have parties and stuff like that. Well, you know, I'm one of those guys who believes that you want to immerse yourself in the local culture and not just hang out at the normal touristic spots. So if you go to that place, you're hanging with the locals. Yes, you are. Every day. Every day. Are no, there- not, uh, mostly on the weekends. Ah, of course. Mostly on weekends. Well, oh, see, you're covering yourself now, Chief. <laughs> no, you would never go there during the week. Never. No, you could. I, oh, I, you do. Yes. But, but you don't. No. Because <laughs> you're working. Mm-hmm. Um, are there local food trucks? You know, in so many countries, there, there's a whole food truck scene where just trucks come and serve food. You have, you have the food trucks here? We, we have food vans. Yeah. Uh, located at different areas. And the best food to get off the van is what? Well, we have a, a local, um, her name is Corrine. She's, she's staged by, um, in water gut. She have a lot of local food and anything that you could eat. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, someone who, like so many people, came here and decided to stay. Um, didn't come to stay, but ended up staying. Um, she's now, I'll, I'll give you the whole title. Give me the title, Lisa. Go ahead. Uh, my name is Lisa Terry. And I, I was going to introduce you as oh, Lisa okay. Terry, but, but I mean, I, I love the title. Go. I'm, the, I'm a science technician and dive safety officer for the Nature Conservancy in the Caribbean. And you came here and then took off and then you had to come back. Yeah. Why? Uh, I, I love St. Croix. Um, I've lived on maybe half a dozen islands and small countries in tropical places and St. Croix had the best feel. I had, I made some really great friends here and I really love, I love St. Croix. Well, given the nature of the work that the Nature Conservancy does, does it need the most work and care too? Um, it, it definitely could use some care. Uh, there's, there's a lot. And what is the Nature Conservancy doing here? What are you doing here for them? So I, I work specifically with our coral nursery and restoration project, and that is basically growing corals in underwater nurseries and planting them on degraded reefs. So they can basically be restored. So that they can be restored. How bad is the situation? Uh, it, it's pretty bad. Uh, the Caribbean has definitely seen drastic declines in coral coverage in, in the past decades. Um, some people say between 50 and 80 percent. Um, certain corals are upwards of 90 percent. Um, there's a lot of corals that are landing themselves on the endangered species list, um, being listed as threatened. 
So we just want to do the best we can to preserve this really nice ecosystem. Okay, I have to ask a, essentially a stupid question, if you will. Can you actually grow coral and, and restore it, or is there a certain coral that you cannot replace? So you can, there's certain types of corals that are easier to grow than others, um, and those are the ones that we're working with most often right now. Um, and then we're doing the best we can to innovate and come up with new ideas and new ways to grow the, the trickier ones, the more difficult corals. Because you're also a dive instructor, and, which means you're a diver. And, you know, obviously there are many islands right now that have finally embraced the idea that you touch nothing, you take nothing when you dive. I'm assuming that's the case here. Uh, yeah, in St. Croix, definitely. I, I think that all of our tour operators are very good about encouraging people not to touch anything, not to step on the reef, um, and to, to be very eco-friendly in, in that way. Um, that that's not necessarily true for, for all of the Caribbean. Uh, but I, I think that the Virgin Islands do, do a pretty good job of, of reminding people that. And when you take people down, when you, when you, when you dive with folks, what are you going to see here that you're not going to see anywhere else? Uh, well, St. Croix, I think, is really famous for uh, the wall that's off the North Shore yeah. of, of St. Croix. Um, it's a, about 300 yards off the beach. You can see a wall that drops down to 3,000 and then a little further out, 14,000 feet. That is um, one deep trench. Yeah. <laughs> and, nobody, and if you're going down there, you're not coming back. Uh, hopefully, you're, hopefully you're coming back. Nobody's hopefully going you're down not to, going all the way nobody's down. Nobody's going down to 14,000. <laughs> Sorry. No, but it's been measured at 14,000. Um, yeah. Amazing. Now, you're also doing some other stuff. You're doing a lot of, of, of the census work, let's say, for example, with turtles. Yeah, so the, the Nature Conservancy is one of, the, one of multiple organizations in St. Croix that works with monitoring sea turtle populations and our specific beaches that we work with are out on the east end of St. Croix, and they include Jack, our Jack's Bay and Isaac's Bay Preserve. And um, we have volunteers that go out and monitor the sea turtle population there, as well as take down data about turtles that come up and lay eggs and tag them and um, also discourage poaching on those beaches. And when people come to visit St. Croix, can they come work with you guys? Uh, they can, yeah. So we have... We are always trying to grow our volunteer program. We're always looking for people interested in helping out, and we have many different ways, whether that's you being a scuba diver and you want to come help with the coral stuff. Um, we take care of a couple different land areas, so we have a couple different preserves that people can always help with, um, kind of more on the manual labor side. And then, of course, the turtle stuff is a lot of walking on the beach at night. Um, but that's, still what, that's very, when you see it. That's when you see it. Yeah. 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 But but very, very meaningful and, and very fulfilling work. OK. Since you now are an aficionado of the island, what's <laughs> your favorite dive spot for you? Uh, so when I came to work here the first time, I, I worked in a, on a area called Cane Bay and I worked for Cane Bay Dive Shop and we would take people shore diving from there almost every single day. And so that I kind of think of as my backyard. Um, and in addition to that, my probably my favorite dive site on St. Croix is a dive site called Vertigo. Tell me about it. Um, it's it's a spot where the... It's a little scary. That's a scary title. Yeah, yeah, I know. So it's one of those sites that you, you only take more kind of comfortable advanced divers and you uh, want to go on a calm day. But the, the wall just kind of comes to a point and it has a very sheer face to it. So it's just an amazing looking topography. But you gotta know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just thought I mentioned <laughs> that. You gotta know what you're doing. It helps. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. 
Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.